are continuing series um, which we started last week for Christmas this year. As you can see, we've entitled it Christmas Unwrapped. Um, the implication being that we're going to be looking at some of the, the traditions that we attach to Christmas uh, and exploring them a little bit and seeing how they, they fit into the narrative of the first Christmas as we see it described in the Bible. So Boydy spoke to us last week in the first talk of the series, um, a bit of a difficult topic he ended up with about smells and aromas and how we attach certain smells to Christmas and really uh, helpfully took us through how that idea takes on significance in the Bible. <clears throat> and the second tradition uh, that we're going to be looking at this week is much less specific than that, um, but nonetheless I think it's a very significant one, and that is the simple tradition of meeting with your family at Christmas time. I imagine most of us will spend Christmas Day with our, our close family, I would guess. Um, you know, Christmas Day is a time usually for, you know, mums, dads, siblings, grandparents, close families to get together. And then over the sort of extended holiday period, I don't know how you work it, you, you might travel around a bit, see sort of cousins, aunties, uncles, that kind of thing, um, and sort of see your, your extended family. For many of us, family will form a central part of how we choose to spend our Christmas. Family will be at the very heart of, of what we do. And I think it's a great tradition, um, but I must admit, I do find it a little bit strange in some ways. Um, and that's mainly because, for some reason, at, at Christmas time, we suddenly get this impulse to start connecting with family members and, and people that we probably don't give much of a second thought to the rest of the year. Um, I don't know, maybe on the birthdays, but certainly when I was young, I don't know if any of you can relate to this. Um, so when I was a kid, we'd have like wall-to-wall -wall Christmas cards all over the house on every available surface, mantelpiece, fireplace. You know, tellies were big back then as well. You could fit like a good few Christmas cards on the top of them. And I'd be like just wandering through this sea of cardboard and I'd, like, I'd just pick one up at random and it'd say something like, Happy Christmas, love from, I don't know, Sandra or somebody. And I'd, you know, I'd say to me, Mom, Mom, who's Sandra? And like, without even batting an eyelid, she'd go, oh, he's, she's your brother's, uncle's, cousin's wife. But like, I, I hitherto did not know this person existed. You know, and I remember being dragged around shopping centers with my mum like two weeks before Christmas with her saying stuff like, oh, I've got to get a card and a present for great uncle so-and-so. You know, and thinking, the last interaction you had with him was the card you sent him last year. What? I don't know, make of that what you will. But we get this strange impulse at Christmas, don't we, to try and reach out and connect with people and sort of feel like more of a community or a family. And if somebody said to you, I don't know, maybe an older person, you know, I feel a bit lonely at the moment, you know, you'd, probably, you'd almost certainly feel sorry for them. But if somebody came up to you like an older person and said, I felt really lonely over Christmas, you know, no one came to see me, your heart would break in half, wouldn't it? Why? Why Christmas in particular? Now, I was alone on Guy Fawkes night. Don't quite have the same ring to it, does it? But if you break it down, is it not just a day like any other day? You know, we might exchange some novelty socks, eat a bit more than we should, but isn't it just another day? Well, the simple answer is, is no, it's not, is it? Now, never has that been truer than Christmas 2020, which we all spent on our tods. You know, and the thrust of all the advertising that I've seen on the TV this year is, you know, last Christmas was really terrible, unless you're an MP, but 
you know, let's make this Christmas the best one ever. You know, let's reconnect this Christmas time. You know, have you ever asked yourself, why did John Lennon choose to release a song about ending war as a Christmas single? Or why did Bob Geldof choose Christmas specifically to draw attention to poverty in Africa? You know, I'm sure he could have released it in July and still got his point across. Albeit he couldn't have called it, do they know it's Christmas? You know, we take, just as we've been talking about a couple of minutes ago, we take part in Operation Christmas Child at this church every year. So impoverished kids can have Christmas presents. You know, how wonderful was that video that we looked at? You know, it's, it's particularly Christmas we want them to experience, isn't it? For some reason, Christmas makes us more conscientious. You know, for some reason, whether it's, it's mankind in the broader sense or whether it's our close families, this desire to connect becomes more acute at Christmas time. Why? Well, I believe it's because we have a certain intuition as human beings that we were made for something better than this world. And we look for transcendence in our everyday lives. We look for connection beyond the physical, beyond the material. You know, and even though we might not admit it, we know that we were made to live harmoniously in relationship with each other. You know, we were made for a world without poverty, without war, without family breakups and loneliness. And the message of hope and connection in the Christmas story, I think, kind of hides in our collective consciousness a little bit. I'm sure most of us are familiar with the phrase, peace on earth, goodwill to men. That's the one that we roll out at Christmas, isn't it? Well, that is a mantra that goes hand in hand with the birth of Jesus Christ. That is precisely what he came to bring. And I believe the message of light coming out of darkness reminds us of what we are and what we yearn for. So with that in mind, I just want us to look briefly at the passage that the scouts so wonderfully read for us and see how the Christmas story started with humble, a humble and somewhat strained family relationship. So I'm just going to break that passage down into to three short little chunks. and We're going to start with verses 18 and 19. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. <clears throat> so as I've said, we're going to be looking at this text through the microcosm of family. And what we see instantly is, from the outside at least, this family looks like a bit of a mess. You know, when we were meeting up, as a preaching team looking at preparing this, this series, we spoke a little bit about debunking some of the traditions that get attached to Christmas. I'm sure most of you, when you think about the Christmas story, you'll picture you know, the nativity scene in your mind with the peaceful manger and the star and the fluffy farm animals and all that, and it's all very pretty. The reality of the Christmas story is, as Paul mentioned a couple of weeks ago, it contains infanticide through an evil dictator. It contains a boy born in a manger. Honestly, the closest modern equivalent I could think of was if somebody today was born in a public toilet. It's not something you'd put on the front of a Christmas card, I don't think. And then we see a woman, Mary, who is pregnant, and she's not married. Most of you thinking, big deal, they weren't married. Who cares? Well, what we have to bear in mind is this is first century Palestine. So if you read on a little bit in your Bibles, you'll come across a tale 
where Jesus has to stop a load of people stoning a woman to death because she's presumably married. She's described as an adulteress and she's been caught sleeping around. This kind of thing wouldn't have been without consequence at the time. So Mary comes to Joseph, her fiancé, and says, guess what, I'm pregnant and it's not yours. That's how this story starts. Mind you, more of an episode of Jerry Springer than the birth of the Son of God, doesn't it? And how does Joseph react in verse 19? Like a lot of men would react, I would guess. I want a divorce. Now he agreed to divorce her quietly, possibly because he didn't want Mary's pregnancy to attract some unwanted attention. Um, I should also point out at this stage that in this culture, if you were engaged to be married to someone, it kind of counted as sort of already being married in a lot of legal ways. So if you actually wanted a divorce from your fiancé, sorry, if you wanted to split from your fiancé, then you would actually need, need a divorce. So I think it's, it's probably safe to assume things were not happy in the household of Joseph and Mary at this particular time. If you're going to pick a backdrop for the birth of the Son of God, is this the situation you would choose? Probably not. <clears throat> you probably imagine a more fitting scenario as, you know, Jesus floating down on a cloud surrounded by angels, you know, something like you'd see on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. But the reality is he was born into a humble family on the brink of divorce. I think in truth, the humility of Jesus' circumstances would be a theme that would continue for the rest of his life. I think if we're being honest with ourselves, somewhere along the line, Christianity and the church in general has kind of lost sight of those humble beginnings. Now, don't think of Jesus like the Pope. He didn't spend his time living in grand cathedrals and palaces with gilded ceilings. Bible describes God as blindingly, frighteningly holy to the point where we can't even look at him without falling to the floor dead. So to bridge the gap, God sent his son. And for want of a better phrase, he came to get his hands dirty. He came to take on our humanity, yes, but not only that, he came to go right to the very bottom of it. You know, so he was born in a feeding trough. He worked a menial job. He was homeless and poor for most of his ministry. And he ended up dying a death reserved for the lowest common criminal of his day, all whilst being abandoned by some of his friends. He didn't shy away from the problems of humanity. Might sound controversial, but I think you'd probably be more likely to find him in a rough pub than a grandiose church or a cathedral or a palace. And he came to mix it with us. And that all started with this strange mess of a situation that he's born into. So secondly... We're going to sort of dart around a bit, but we're going to look at verses 20, 24, and 25. But after he had considered this, getting a divorce, that is, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit. When Joseph woke up, skipping on to verse 24, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So Joseph's at a crossroads. He's got a decision to make. He seems pretty certain about what he wants to do until a very strange, miraculous thing happens to him. An angel comes to him, tells him to do a U-turn on his divorce idea, tells him to marry Mary, tells him what to call the baby. And what does Joseph do? Quite simply, exactly what he's told. In verse 24 and 25, 
And I think that simple fact can kind of easily pass you by. But I just want us to dwell on it for one second. Joseph did what he was told and he obeyed. You might say to me, well, of course he did. An angel came to him in a dream, probably frightened him half to death. He's had a life-changing experience. I can give you plenty of examples of people in the Bible who have had what should have been a life-changing experience. And it did very little to change them or alter them as you think it might do. I'm sure most of you have heard of the story of Moses in the Red Sea. Red Sea splits in half right and two in front of the Israelites so they can escape the evil Egyptians and they get to the other side miraculously amazing. And initially, the experience they've had seems to have the desired effect. If you read Exodus 14.31, it says, Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt, so the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. And great, they got the message. It made the impression that it should have done. Fortunately, it didn't last very long. Skip forward two chapters to verse 16. Uh, sorry, chapter 16. They start getting hungry. As soon as they get hungry, they start wittering to go back into slavery. They witnessed a life-changing experience. It did very little to change who they were or inspire greater faith or obedience in them. Judas Iscariot, another great example, witnessed what you would think would be life-changing scenarios on a pretty regular basis. Seeing Jesus raise folk from the dead, walk on water, demons cower at his feet. Didn't stop him betraying him to make a few quid. And God has blessed a lot of us here in really miraculous ways. He's looked after me more times than I can count when I have been on the brink of disaster. But I am ashamed to say those experiences haven't always cultivated a more obedient, faithful heart in me. And if we're not careful, those experiences can easily pass us by without teaching us anything. Joseph didn't let this experience pass him by. He grabbed it with both hands. He did what he was told. Cancelled his appointment with his divorced lawyer. Married Mary. And he agreed to bind himself to her, presumably risking being associated with her public disgrace. And he played this sort of infamous but really brief part in the Christmas story that we've become so familiar with. And that's it, really. That's, that's all we get from Joseph in the Bible. It's a cameo role, if you like. I think he appears twice. But his simple act of obedience and faithfulness in naming Jesus has taken on a much wider significance, not only in the story of Christmas, but also in the salvation story of mankind. So lastly, and very briefly, we're going to look at verses 21, 22, and 23 put the middle at the end just to make things nice and straightforward. I don't know why. Um, verse 21, she will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. <clears throat> so I mentioned at the beginning the kind of longing that we have to be part of a family and to connect with people gets stronger at Christmas. And I believe that is because God designed us for relationship. Relationships with each other and with families, yes. But crucially, relationship with him. There's a phrase in the Bible that says, every good and perfect gift comes from above. And I believe that 
the love and the depth of emotion that we feel when we look at our children or our spouses. My son's over there shouting at me as if on cue. Um, you know, or the heartache that we feel when we see our parents or our grandparents getting older and more isolated. That little piece of us that we can't quite explain or control. I believe that it's, it's something that God has placed within us quite deliberately. God shows every range of emotion that you can think of in the Bible. But crucially, he remains untainted by evil and corruption. And then we read verse 23. The virgin will conceive, give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. <coughs> I could talk all night about that phrase. I think there's been books written just about those three little words. I'm not going to go on for too long, but just for the purposes of today, talking about Christmas and family, as I've kind of alluded to already, Christmas is a very, very painful time for a lot of people. You know, for many of you, you'll see families enjoying Christmas together and family members that you've lost will become more conspicuous by their absence. Well, for some of you, Christmas might just be like a logistical nightmare, you know, for some of the reasons Joseph was contemplating. You know, trying to navigate your kids between ex-partners or spouses, you know, being forced into dealing with people you don't really want to, just because it's Christmas. So for those of us that yearn to be in a family situation that doesn't cause us pain and stress, God is saying, I want to be with you. And Jesus coming to earth is evidence of that. He wants to invite you into his family and to demonstrate what being part of his family actually looks like. You know, we're not, for want of a better phrase, we're not, we're not playing games here at Christ Church. You know, there's churches out there that will use Christmas as an excuse to sing some nice carols, wear a Christmas jumper, drink some mulled wine, feel nice and warm and fuzzy inside, and that'll be it for them. Not for us. Don't get me wrong, we love the mulled wine. We love, you know, meeting with you all, singing carols and all the rest of it. But the birth of Jesus Christ is a central part of the lives of the Christians here. And it's something that affects us every day, 365 days a year, because of that, because he came to be with us, because we're part of his family and we believe that he loves us. But crucially, Jesus gets a second title in this passage. Slightly strange, he gets two names. He's going to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us, but verse 21, he's going to be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. Fortunately, to invite us into his family, it was going to take more than Jesus just being born into the world and preaching some nice things. Ironically, it was going to take the exact opposite. He was going to have to die to save his people from their sin. You know, we all want the John Lennon, Bob Geldof version of Christmas, don't we? We want war to be over. We want Africans to be fed. We want hatred and evil eradicated from the world, but are we willing to eradicate it from ourselves? And while ever we live in this imperfect world, we've got this ongoing dilemma. We want peace and love and family and harmony, but we can't attain it. And God says that's because our most fundamental relationship is broken, and that is our relationship with him. We want to go our own way. We think we can attain our own version of utopia through our own efforts. You know, and how's that worked out for humanity so far? So when it all goes to pot, 
and we see broken families and greed and hatred, we're still left with this aching feeling that it is not meant to be like this. And there's a verse in the Bible in Isaiah which says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him, that's Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Iniquity is just a fancy word for, for sin and evil. God says to eliminate the sin that causes our loneliness and struggle and rebellion from him. The son of God had to pay the ultimate price of himself in giving his life on a cross. It's only because of that that we can say Emmanuel. It's because of that we can feel hope at Christmas despite what our circumstances are. Because we know that our situation will be perfected by him one day into how it was always meant to be. Now, that's a really important distinction to make. I am not standing up here saying Christianity and Christians hold the key to utopia in this world. We do not. You know, in fact, there's people that have done things in the name of Christianity that have made the world a whole lot worse. But the Bible says that one day things will be put right. Not through anything we've done, but through the Son of God giving his life in place of humanity and answering for all the ways that we have messed up. I've said the message of Christmas is central to the life of this church, but only because the birth of the Messiah ended up with the Messiah hanging from a cross to save his people. My prayer for everyone here today, including myself, is that the message of Christmas will change our lives because of this fact.